Well, we are just a few days away from Turkey Day. So in the spirit of the holidays, turn to the turkey on each side of you and say, I am thankful for you. Go ahead, all the way around the room. Share those thanksgivings. You're still finding more turkeys. That's awesome. I love the spirit of Thanksgiving, don't you? Well, I am very thankful that there were some who were listening last week as I was teaching on Twisted Scripture. I brought up the picture of the Bluebell cookie ice cream, Christmas cookie ice cream, and a couple was listening, and it showed up on our doorstep last week. And so in the spirit of God moving among his people, I thought I'd share with you something else going on. Chevy has come out with a Christmas car. It's Santa sleigh, and if anybody's listening, just saying. All right, wanted to plant that seed while I could. If you have your Bibles, let's go in our series to a next passage on Scripture that may or may not be understood. Go to a famous passage, Psalm 23, what's called the Shepherd's Psalm. A lot of people look to Psalm 23 for comfort, and many times as we read Scripture, depending on what's happening in our lives, Sometimes we can make scripture say what we want it to say. That's what we call twisted scripture. Sometimes the enemy wants to twist it to get you off base, just like he did in the garden. And so let's take a look at Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Is that true? Is the Lord your shepherd? What that means is he's the one that guides me, not my flesh, not my desires, not my own ways. He's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. When the Lord is our shepherd, it says we shall not want. It doesn't mean we don't want things. It's saying I shall not want. I'm not in wanting. I have all I need in Christ. But verse 2, what does it mean to not want? Well, verse 2 for some might be the key. Take a look at verse 2, the scriptural context. He leads me beside quiet waters. What does that mean? Well, some would read that. They might dig into the Hebrew and and say, well, in that translation, it loses some meaning. It actually means that he leads me over still water. Go ahead and look at that again. He leads me over. Now, if I'm Coach Venables reading that, I want to read it the way I want to read it. Some of you are already bitter. Don't get bitter at me. Get bitter at the twisted scripture. Now, that's a silly example from an OU fan to maybe lose an audience this morning. That's not where we're actually going with scripture. I just had to go there because somebody said, I dare you. All right, here we go. Let's actually go where we need to go. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Hey, let's, let's be honest. OU and OSU, we're in one big support group, all right? We all are in the loser support group. Come on now, we're all in it together. So love me unconditionally. Let's look at the real scriptures this morning. Psalm 23 is a real scripture. Let's look at it as God has intended it. Ephesians 6.10, look at it. Paul was warning people that the enemy loves to scheme on us. He loves to twist reality. He loves to twist scripture. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his might. Part of the challenge in the Christian faith is we try to live it in our own strength. And Paul said you can't do it. You have to live in the strength of the Holy Spirit in his might. And you are equipped for these battles. You're to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Paul warned him and he said you are going to be schemed on. The devil is playing you. He'll do anything he can to distract you, to divide you, and to destroy you. 
And he does that through his schemes. And part of those schemes is to twist the scripture. Look at verse 13. Drop down to verse 13. He says, so take up the full armor of God that you'll be able to resist in that evil day. Having done everything to stand firm, do this. Put on and gird your loins with truth. There's the first piece. He talks about another piece. He says, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. I believe Paul was probably using the picture of a Roman soldier and his equipping and drawing a picture and saying, what you see, how they arm themselves for battle. Let me tell you what those pieces mean for a believer. Gird your loins. Put on that belt of truth. Make sure you put on a breastplate, but make sure it's the breastplate of his righteousness. Make sure that you have on those shoes for battle, that you shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up your shield of faith. That shield which protects you from the fiery darts of the enemy. Faith. Walking in faith. And that shield, our faith in who Christ is and what Christ has done, that's what protects us from the fiery darts. But look at the next piece, verse 17. And take the helmet, the helmet of salvation. What's the purpose of a helmet? The helmet is there to guard your head, your mind. Now Paul says, let me tell you what that helmet is. It's the helmet of what? Salvation. You see, what Paul understood is one of the greatest attacks that happens in our mind is an attack on whether we are saved or not. His greatest weapon is to try to rob you of that reality. I believe the greatest battle any person will ever face on this planet is answering the question, am I saved? I think the greatest question a believer will wrestle with is am I still saved? I remember growing up and thinking, well, maybe I'm saved. Maybe I'm good enough to make it to heaven. I was banking on that, hoping I was good enough and that God would take me in, but I didn't have any peace with that. Then I was presented the gospel my junior year of high school, and it was then that I found Christ and God saved me, radically changed my life. And in that, as I had this new relationship with God, I had the same battles about my salvation. I remember thinking that if I got saved and accepted Jesus, I'd be perfect like you Baptist folk are. I'd be like you, mastering all things. Nothing would master me. I'd never have any struggles. I would have it all figured out just like you do. Got saved and still had those battles and still had those struggles. And the enemy would twist in my ear, well, Bill, you may have been saved a week ago, but you've blown it. Remember what you did this weekend with your friends? You must not be saved. And I wrestled with that for over two years. It was interesting. We were interviewing one of our uh, deacons that we're about to ordain, and he grew up in a denomination that taught you could lose your salvation. He said it was 10 years of hell in my life, struggling. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Have I done something to lose my salvation? And the enemy was twisting that reality. Well, there are a lot of people today that believe you can lose your salvation. That you can be saved one day and another day you can lose it because of something you've done. What are some verses they'll point to? Let me show you some twisted scriptures. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7 they'll point to this and they'll say, look, see, here are people who knew the Lord and are not saved. Take a look at it. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are those who've said, Lord, 
uh, and there are those who will be saved, and then there are some who have said, Lord, and they're not saved. See, there's a category of people. They've lost their salvation. Is that what this verse is teaching? Remember, we've got to look at context. Lord, Lord, went into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so they use this verse. They take one verse, and they think they know what it's saying. It appears that you can one day say, Lord, save me. And on another day, you quit doing his will. And when you quit doing his will, no longer are you under the lordship of Christ. And now you've lost your salvation. Is that what it's saying? Well, let's do our digging. Let's look at the context. Go to verse 22. So many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. In your name perform many miracles. And again, they'll look at verse 22 and they'll say, see... These were people who called on the name of the Lord. These are people who did ministry in the name of the Lord. They experienced the miraculous, and yet they would lose their salvation because they quit doing the will of God. Well, there's a problem here with that interpretation. The first problem is this. The first problem is it draws a conclusion that salvation is based on something I do. It would make it a work of me. I'm either saved or I'm not saved because of me because of what I've done or what I haven't done that's an error the Bible says we're not saved by our works lest any man boast it's not what we've done it's what Christ has done but there's more to it there's let's let's look at it. let's make sure we're not twisting scripture let's see what this is teaching verse 23 is the key look at it and then I will declare to them who to those who said Lord with their lips to those who went to church to those who did God's stuff, religious things and religious activities, and the Lord himself, the Lord God Almighty, the one and only true one, will say, depart from me. See, they lost it. They're not saved anymore. Depart from me. Underline the next phrase. I never knew you. You see, there is a reality that you can be in church and not be in Christ. There is a reality that you can learn how to do church and do churchy things. You can join a church. You can be active in a church. You can do ministry in Jesus' name and still not know Christ. How's that possible? It was possible in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, there were, there were all kinds of denominations, if you will, even in Jerusalem. And they had the Bible. They knew what God's word said. They were doing things in God's name. Even Saul of Tarsus, who was killing Christians, was doing it in God's name for God. But he didn't know him. He never entered into a relationship with Christ. This is not teaching you can lose your salvation. It's showing you how you can have salvation. You have to know him. Not know about him. I knew about him. All the way through junior high and high school. I knew there was a God. I knew there was Jesus. I talked to him. But he didn't know me. I'd never given him my heart. Have you come to that place? Not what you say with your lips, but what have you done with your heart? Has there been a time where in your heart you said, God, I'm a sinner. God, save me. At that point, the Bible says you are born a second time. The same way that you're here breathing and living now because you had two parents that birthed you. That's your physical birth, the first birth. But the Bible says there must be a second birth 
for you to truly be saved. It's not what you do. It's not joining a church. It's not even being baptized. Why was she baptized this morning? Because she has been saved. To picture what God has done. He died for her sins. He rose from the dead. She is now alive in Christ. That's her testimony. Not what she's done, what Christ has done. And so, when we enter into true salvation, it's because of what Christ has done. And because we are born a second time, we're in right relationship. But people will keep looking to verses. The enemy will keep twisting scripture to try to rob you of peace with God and the peace of God. Let me show you another verse. This one was thrown at me years later. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. First two years of my Christianity, I was struggling Am I saved? Am I not saved? I was double-minded. I was wavering. I, I didn't have any assurance. I didn't know what Scripture said. I'd just been saved. So I started digging in. Spent two years studying what the Bible said about true salvation. I was set free from the lies of the enemy, and it gave me an, an incredible peace. And, and now I was a youth pastor at our old location. I was the youth pastor at Putnam City Baptist Church. I got a call one day, and one of the teachers, Susie Schellenberger, I love her dearly. She was one of the teachers at Bethany High School. She would go on to work at James Dobson's organization, Focus on the Family. She would bring in people to debate scripture. She taught a Bible class there at Bethany High School. and They were studying the doctrine of salvation. She said, Bill, I want you to come. We're going to have a debate about can you lose your salvation? Oh, man, you called the expert. Bring me in. Let's talk. And I was going to get to help all these kids find the same victory I had finally discovered two years later. So here I am. I'm presenting all these scriptures. I'm going through all the things that point to being saved and what it means to be born again and the peace that we have in that. And she said, those are great, Bill. Let me take you to this verse. Explain to the class this. Turn to Revelation. And go ahead. Do it with me. Turn to Revelation chapter 3 now. Go to Revelation 3, verse 5. Let me show you this scripture, that if you don't know what it's saying, the enemy can make it say something else. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. There are those who say, see, there's a condition to salvation. You have to be able to overcome sin. But if someone is overcome by sin, they lose their salvation. This, this verse seems to teach that look at it the one who overcomes will be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life I will confess his name before my father and before his angels and Susie said that verse seems to say pastor that your name can be written in the book of life but if you don't overcome sin it can get erased you can lose your salvation Uh oh what do you think about that Bill you know what I said Oh, I didn't know. I'd never seen that verse. I knew what other verses said, but I also know God's word doesn't contradict itself. So all of a sudden I had a dilemma. Had I just been believing what the Baptist preacher had been saying? Or is it just a couple verses I didn't understand, but apparently your name can be erased from book? That's a problem, isn't it? What's it saying? Well, let's dig in. Let's see exactly. There are a couple things. Interesting enough, you don't have to turn here. But in Exodus chapter 32, verse 32, all the way back to the days of Moses was this understanding of our names being written in a book. Listen, and I'll put it up on the screen. Moses returned to the Lord. He'd been on the mountain 
if you remember the story, he'd been up there so long, the people talked Aaron into building a golden fat calf. It's where McDonald's started, the golden arches, right over the golden calf, right there. And they worshipped a God they could make with their own hands, they could see with their own eyes, something they could understand, because they didn't get this spirit God. And Moses was now gone. They thought he was dead. So they created their own God, idolatry. Moses comes down off the mountain and he finds that they have grieved God with a great sin. And it says this, Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, God, if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Even to the days of Moses, he knew about this book where names were written. And he knew that because of their idolatry, they deserved to be separated from a holy God for all of eternity. God's judgment on the people. And he was so burdened for his people, so burdened for Israel. He said, God, don't take it out on, me, on them. Let it be my name. Take my name out of the book. You say, well, see, your name can be erased. Just because Moses asked for that to be done doesn't mean it can be done. Just because Moses was pleading with God, he was addressing the book where the names are written. He was addressing the reality of let me take their place, knowing there is judgment. What, what is all this stuff? The book of life. What does it mean, uh, my name erase? Well, let's go back and let's look at Revelation 3 with greater detail. Let's put the magnifying glass on it. Let's dig in. Remember what it said, the one who overcomes? Go to 1 John chapter 5. You've got to see this verse. I am going to ask you to study today. I am going to ask you to dig in. You're going to have to work a little bit today. There's a lot to be seen. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, look at it. For whatever, whoever is born of God. John doesn't say whoever declares the name of the Lord. A lot of people can declare the name of the Lord. That doesn't mean they're saved. But he says whoever has been born of God. You see, that was the definition, which we'll study next week, of what it means to truly be saved. It doesn't matter what you've said with your lips. It doesn't matter if you prayed a prayer that a Baptist preacher has led you in or some other preacher. Have you been born of God? Do you have a heavenly father? If you have, then you are a child of God. And it says this, whoever is born of God, they overcome the world. Not because of what we do, but because of whose we are. And because of what God does in a life that is born again, he works in our life, he perfects that life, he empowers our life, and he gives us victory over the world. Look at this. For this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. John was saying, if you are truly born again, you are saved. Well, there are people who will argue and they say, well, I know this person, and I know that they were active, they were a deacon, or they were even a minister, and they preached the gospel and now, today, they live just like any other pagan on the planet. They have rejected their family. They've rejected God. They don't believe. Therefore, they've lost their salvation. Don't argue your theology from an experience. Argue your theology from Scripture. Just because you've seen something doesn't mean that is true. There are a lot of people in Jesus' day that saw 12 disciples. There are a lot of people who knew a guy named Judas. There are a lot of guys who assumed Judas was a Christian. The Bible says he was not. He was a son of perdition. He was not a son of the Heavenly Father. 
He had never been saved. He declared with his lips, Jesus, Lord. He was the treasurer for Jesus' ministry. He did lots of things with Jesus. He saw people healed, but he had to spend eternity separate. He is spending eternity separated from God because God never knew him in relationship. He didn't lose his salvation. He was never saved. But a lot of people in that day would have been confused and say, well, oh, oh, there's one of his disciples, and now he's no longer a disciple, so he once was, but now he's not. No, he never was. Don't argue your theology from experience. Argue it from the truth of Scripture. The one who is born of God, even though they will mess up, even though they will fall short of God's glory, two people that night betrayed Jesus, Peter and Judas. One was born again, Peter. The other was not. Both declared Lord with their lips. Only one had a changed heart, Peter. So the one who's been born again, the one who's born of God, they will overcome. So don't twist the scripture. Don't say, well, if somebody is struggling, that must mean they're not a Christian. Well, we don't know. Only he knows. But we know this. God will complete the work he begins in his children. Very quickly, we've got to look at several other things, and I've got to let you go quickly, so go to Revelation chapter 20. Let's keep looking at the scriptural context of the book of life. Let's look at what Revelation 3 was saying through other scriptures. I told you you're going to have to work a little bit today. Hang with me. Revelation 20 verse 12 says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from these things which were written in the books according to their deeds. People will read this and they'll say, well, see, look, look, look. It doesn't matter what you do. See, they're being judged according to their deeds. Well, know what the word's talking about. The context of this passage is not all of mankind. It's a portion of mankind. It was a great number, a large number of great and small people, people who were famous, people who were not, people who had great riches, people who did not. There was this great vast group of humanity not all of humanity but a great vast group and they they appear before the holy judge of men's souls and it says well, look, look at this go back it talks about the book of life but notice this jumped out at me this week and there were books that were open there were books that were open i'd never seen that i'd always seen the book of life but i'd never seen the books like, whoa, whoa, what, what's going on? What does that mean? What, what's happening here? So these people are standing before the holy God of all eternity. And the books are open. And it says there's another book also. There are these books and there's the book of life. Those books, this book. Get that picture. And they appear before God. And these people are judged according to their deeds. So if you're good, that weighs the bad. Is that going to work? The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags. And they appear before the judge, just like if you've been speeding in a school zone, going 125 in a school zone, good luck getting out of that ticket. They will appear before all the judges and they'll say, God, I did all this in your name. I went to church. I went to Falls Creek. I was baptized. They'll list all these things they did. And the holy judge will look at what's written in these books and it'll validate what they've done, what they haven't done. And he'll have to say, depart from me. What do you say in Matthew 7? 
I never knew you. They appear before him based on what's in these books, but the problem is their names were not written in this book, the book of life. That ought to wake everyone up in this room. That ought to make you wonder, where is my name written? Am I only in these books? Or is my name written in that book? What are these books? Let let me just take you through some things. I did some digging. I'd never studied it before. And I'm like, what other books are there? I knew about the book of life, but what other books are there? Well, there are three that a lot of theologians will point to. I'm not saying this is all of it. I'm not saying we figured it all out. But the Bible does talk throughout all of Scripture about these books of God. One book is the book of the living. I believe that's these books over here that were opened up at the white throne judgment. The books of the living. We'll talk about that in Scripture in just a minute. Then there is the book of remembrance. I've never seen that. We'll see the book of remembrance. And then, of course, this talks about the third book, the book of life. What's the difference in these books? What makes all the difference in eternity? You better figure it out. So let's look at the first set of books, the books of the living. Psalm 56, verse 8. What I'm going to ask you to do, write these verses down and look at them on the screen. For the sake of time, let's just document what God's word says about these books. Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist said, Lord, you have taken account. It's a picture of an accounting book. The set of books that are opened up, debits and credits. You've taken account of my wanderings, my steps, my life. You've recorded it all down in the ledgers. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Many Bible scholars believe this is the book of the living. Same one that's talked about in Psalm 139 and verse 16. Write down Psalm 139 verse 16. He says this. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written, were all written, the days that were ordained for me. The books of the living. The books that record my life here on this planet. All the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not even one of them. Before I even took my first breath, it was already recorded in this book. Then there's another kind of book talked about in Malachi. Write down Malachi 3.16. In Malachi 3.16 we get this. Another different book. A book of remembrance. There were those who feared the Lord. Now in this book it's anyone who's been born there's another book the book of remembrance for those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it and there was a book of remembrance which was written before him for those who fear the Lord who esteem his name they will be mine says the Lord of hosts and on that day I prepare for my own possession I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. There are some Bible scholars who believe that this book, the book of remembrance, would document what we've done with our life in Christ. That Back in that day, the kings of Persia, they would keep books of those soldiers that served their kings. And they would keep those books, and based on what they did to serve their king, they would receive great rewards because they had served the king. There are some who say that this book, the book of remembrance, is that which will be not at the white throne judgment we read about earlier, but this speaks of a judgment believers have where we give an account for our life, what we did in Christ. Not for salvation, but where God will reward, 
where God will give crowns, rewards to those who've served the king. Well, that leaves us with this third book, the book of life. So go back again to Revelation 20. And it says in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they would be thrown into the fire. So in Revelation 20, in Revelation 3, we see this book, the book of life. Not the book of the living, but the book of life. And anyone's names, names that were written there because they were born, but those who were written in this book, if their name didn't appear, they spent eternity separated from God. How do you get in the book? What's this book of life? And can your name be erased from it? Psalm chapter 69, 27 and 28 says this, speaking of those who live in their sin, not in the Savior, but in their sin. He said, add their iniquity to their iniquity, God, and may they not come into your righteousness. He's speaking of people who are lost in their sin, people that were attacking the people of God, people who did not love God, didn't want to serve God, and he said, may they not enter into your righteousness, may they be blotted out of the book of life, may they not be recorded with the righteous. What in the world? What does that mean? Well, let's go back, Revelation 3, 5, and we close. He who overcomes, I will not erase his name from the book of life. We saw the one who overcomes is the one who's born of God. We also see that in this reality, the promise, I will not erase their name. So what in the world does all this mean? Can my name be erased? Can I be on the books, but then off the books? No. Let me show you what it means. I believe God was giving John a revelation. I think he was giving something in his historical context made more sense to his people than it does to us. But let me make sense to our culture. In those days when you were born into the world, your name was recorded on the city docket, the city books. We're about to celebrate Christmas and We'll tell the story to our children and grandchildren, and we'll remember that we find Mary pregnant with a child, not Joseph's child, God in the flesh, a virgin about to give birth. She and Joseph, Joseph is taking her back to Bethlehem. Why does he take her to Bethlehem? So he can hide from the crowds, from the mob? No, because there was a census being taken. You see, when you were born into this world, your name was on the city books. Your name was written into the book of the living. The reason it was written in there is because that now makes you a taxpayer. That's why they were taking the census, to figure out who was behind on their taxes, who should be paying taxes. They had to report back to their birthplace where their names were written in the book of the living. As you were alive, your names were on the book. You had to verify you were still alive. That still made you a taxpayer, a citizen, in this case, of Bethlehem for David. I mean, I'm sorry, for Joseph, the city of David. He was still on the books. And you know what happened back then when you died? When you died, your family would report it, and your name would be erased from the book book of the living 
They understood these books. They understood for your name to be written, you had to be alive. But if you died, your name would be erased. Jesus, through John, said, I want you to know there is another book. It is the book of life. And if your name is written in it, I will not erase it. I will not erase it. Why? Let me show you why. This is powerful. Go to John chapter 11 and we close. John 11 and verse 25. You still with me? Say, "Uh uh-huh. Just want to make sure I was scared there for a minute. Verse 25. John 11, 25. Jesus showed up at a funeral. A funeral of a friend, Lazarus. He was dead. They had erased his name from the book of the living. He's a dead man. No longer paying taxes. Dead. Jesus appears to his family and he said something powerful to Martha. Look at what he said in verse 25. He said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes with me, they will never die. Born of God. Those who are saved. Those who come to a point in their life. Yes, their names were written in the book of the living. Yes, they'll take their last breath. But because there was a time in their time that they were living, that they trusted me to be Lord and Savior, I wrote their names. It was in, I believe, crimson red, the blood of the Lamb. And my name is in that book, not because I'm a Baptist, not because I'm a I ain't a Baptist. I just get to preach at a Baptist church. I'm born of God. I'm a child of the King. And my name was written in that crimson red blood that was shed at Calvary. My name went from those books to this book, October 18th, 1981. And that name will never be erased from this book. You know why? Because in Christ, I never die. I may take my last breath. But in Christ, I live forever. If I'm alive, I'm still in the books. That's the victory we have. So in reading Revelation 3, it's not the fact that you can have your name written and it can be erased. It is documenting the reality. It will never be erased because you don't die in Christ. Hello? Did I get anybody juiced? That got your salvation anchored down? It does if you know what salvation is. And we'll study that next Sunday. Until then, let's pray about it. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Thank you, Jesus. Aren't you glad that you aren't judged? I hope you're not being judged on your own deeds. You're in one of two books. You're either in this book of the living. I know you're in at least in that one because everybody in here is, I hope, breathing. You've been born into this world. That's the first birth. Everybody's on the book of the living. But the Bible says without a Savior, when we die, we die and we are dead and we are separated from a holy God. Not because he doesn't love us, but because we didn't love him. Because we die in our deeds and our deeds are wicked. Our lives are wicked and it separates us from the holiness of God. But God so loved you, he sent his son so that you could become a son or daughter. 
He sent his son to pay the price for our wickedness, the wages of our sin. So whoever would believe in him, not in their head, but believe in their heart, they could be saved. Their names could be written in the Lamb's book of life. My date in the book, October 18th, 1981. Has there been a date where your name switched ledgers from your deeds to the Lamb's book of life? If you know that to be true, you know that Jesus is your Savior. You don't just know there is a Jesus. No, your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Would you raise your hand and say, God, thank you for saving me? Just lift it up high. Only those who have a Savior. Praise the Lord. Thank you. That's a lot of us. Just like there were a lot in that audience that day when I gave my life to Christ, but I couldn't raise my hand. I didn't have a Savior. I knew there was a Savior. I knew Jesus died on a cross. But I had never entered into a relationship with him. He didn't know me. He knew who I was. He created me. But I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Is there someone this morning that needs to have their name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is there somebody who's viewing online right now and God is speaking to you and you know your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life? Then today, fall on your knees just like we will here. Fall on your knees and cry out to God and say, God, save me give you my life if that's you in this place there'll be ministers here at the front I'm going to encourage you to come and say man I need Jesus I want to nail it down I need to have my name written in the Lamb's book of life I'm going to ask you to be the first to come but I saw a lot of hands go up you've already made that decision but but you don't have a church family or you've not taken that first step of obedience and believers baptism you've not declared your faith in Christ or you have another spiritual need maybe you just need a church where you can be a part of a family of faith and you can grow you can come as well maybe you just need somebody to pray over you we'd love to pray with you but it's up to you what you do next God in this place be honored in these moments Lord may there be a spirit of transparency a, a spirit of repentance a spirit of acceptance spirit of obedience God may we honor you with all that we are with all of our hearts but we ask it right now in Jesus name amen let's stand together